This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore. You're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. And every week we explore conversations and questions from a Christian perspective. And I've been really looking forward to today's uh, conversation. We are talking to Ian Cron, who is a therapist. He's an Episcopal priest. He's uh, an author. And he has a new book out called The Story of You, an Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your True Self. And Ian, thanks for being here on the show. Russell, nothing is more fun than being on a podcast with a friend. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to have a good time. Uh, I have to tell you, sometimes I cringe when I think about the first time that I ever met you. (laughs) Because we were over at a mutual friend's house, uh, Andrew Peterson's house, and uh, you know, everybody was just, this is Ian, this is you know, so-and-so, and it's, it's it, I really wasn't, as, as I often do, I wasn't putting uh, names of people that I meet with people that I have read. And you mentioned something that I had written or said somewhere about the Enneagram, and then I stood there talking about the Enneagram for several minutes to you, and you sort of nodded your head, and then we went on talking about other things uh, later. And then it wasn't until later, Ian, Ian, oh, that was Ian Cron. I told my <laughs> wife, I said, I, I feel like I was sitting there uh, explaining to Johnny Cash what a guitar is or something <laughs> like that. And so I still will think about that all of the time. Uh One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today that really is around this book, this is the, I think the second, second book, right, that you've written on the Enneagram. On the Enneagram, Yeah, you've written uh, Chasing Francis and other things, but the second one on the Enneagram, Road Back to You, uh, which became a wildfire uh, going all over the place, people reading it, and now this new one on the story of you. Let's start by just talking about the Enneagram. Because I know that there are some people in sort of my tribe of evangelical Christianity who are really nervous uh, about the Enneagram. And, and some of them will say, well, I've heard that it, it started in something occultic. Or uh, they'll say, I heard that it started in a really mystical form of Catholicism. And is that really compatible with what I believe. And so just explain to us for people who are kind of curious, what is the Enneagram? 
Sure. The, the Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system that teaches there are nine basic personality styles in the world, uh, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood and just as a way to cope, mm. to feel safe, to protect ourselves, and to n navigate the new world of relationships, right, that yeah. we're now encountering. And each of those types really has an unconscious uh, underlying belief uh, mm -hmm. that powerfully influences how that type predictably and habitually acts, thinks, and feels from moment to moment on a daily basis. You say ancient. Um, where, where does it come from? So we, we believe, right, yeah. uh, that the Enneagram's roots uh, can be traced back to the desert mothers and fathers in the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. There was a, a well-known monk named Evagrius Ponticus, uh, who actually was uh, in some ways responsible for the seven deadly sins, as we, as we know yeah. them now, uh, who uh, began using a primitive form of the Enneagram uh, in spiritual formation with young novice, novice monks, mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it does have uh, Christian roots. Mm -hmm. Now, it then branched off into all, you know, as you know, out in the desert of, you know, Syria two, 15, yeah. 1,600 years ago, I mean, there were all kinds of people wandering around. And so, yes, it took circuitous routes. Yeah. Uh, nobody really wrote about the Enneagram until the 70s. It was something that the Jesuits used uh, mm -hmm. in their spiritual formation program with young uh, priests to be, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but in the maybe the late 70s, early 80s, uh, it was first published about uh, because it had been used in Jesuit retreat centers and on retreats. And people yeah. were like, holy smoke, what is this thing? Yeah, It's so uncannily accurate. It's so accessible. It's so helpful on the spiritual journey. So I, I try to assuage people's anxieties um, uh, about it. I tell them it's the Enneagram, not the pentagram. Don't <laughs> well, panic yes, people. Yes, it's yes. all right. Yes. And it's so fascinating. Speaking of Christianity today, the, the, the week that the, the road back to you came out, mm -hmm. the first publication to review it was Christianity Is today, that right? a mm -hmm. week after it came out. And it was a really glowing, uh, um, review. And I've written several books, Chasing Francis about St. Francis of Assisi, uh -huh. uh, an, another one which was a memoir. I received more criticism in emails for those books than I did for The Road Back to You really? or So Far, The Story of You. So it, apparently yeah. mainstream evangelicals yeah. haven't had too much of a problem for it, yeah. but I think people out on the tails uh, very, very people to the right of evangelicals probably. Yeah. Uh, are well, more and I, I, I think there are some. Um, I hear from people who are mainstream evangelicals in churches who are, who are nervous about what they see as fads mm -hmm. because if, if something's new, they uh, to them, they assume. Well, is this just something that's going to blow through and blow out? And should I invest a lot of time uh, in it? Or as, as one person said, you know, is this, are all of these personality types basically kind of the theme of Disney movies, find yourself, be your true and authentic self, which is uh, quite a bit different uh, from a message that comes uh, in the Bible of you must be born again. There's, there's judgment uh, for sin. And so people are nervous if I if I sort of use this tool, am I am I kind of um, moving away from a biblical understanding of sin and grace toward a 
what Charles Taylor would say, an expressive individualism. Mm. And so they have some concerns and worries about that. What, what would you say to them? Well, interestingly enough, what I think distinguishes the Enneagram from other typologies, and I would include in that Disk and Colby yeah. and Hogan and uh, Myers-Briggs, uh, uh, strengths finders, whatever, all of which are useful tools, yeah. right? Yeah. Self-knowledge is an important uh, feature of the human life, right? The development of self-knowledge uh, is that it actually reveals to you what, that what's best about you is what's worst about you. It reveals that you have, uh, in many ways, uh, a particular core sin mm -hmm. that uh, repeatedly trips you up. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it reveals to you the work that, oh, that we think that God has, at least in some part of your life, right? Enneagram isn't magic, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, in the book, I actually have a quote that I love from the statistician George Box. Uh, he, he says, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Mm. And listen, every yeah. model is wrong, whether in economics or in psychology, right? Yeah. Because they're imprecise. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but they're useful. You yeah. got to start somewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and it at least for me it it helped me to have a category to think about why some people in my life are, are so different uh, from me in the way that they hear things and the way that they react to things, and so I remember one night uh, you and I are, are part of this. Uh, poetry reading group, uh, and we were together uh, one night, and I'm a, an Enneagram 4, so are you, so we're, I think, two other people. Yeah, we in have a lot group. in that group. <laughs> yeah, and so as, we're, as we were talking, uh, someone brought up some really, really hard uh, life past things, and, and sort of that, that became the topic of conversation, and at the end of it, someone said, well, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about tragic and, and, and awful and melancholy things. So for an Enneagram 4, a really fun night. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it was it helpful for me to understand why, uh, say, I, say an 8, Enneagram 8, sort of the um, challenger kind of a, a person, I, I would sometimes receive the way they were interacting as rude uh, or maybe even confrontational. This gave me an understanding of saying, okay, I can, I can kind of filter and interpret what they're trying to, to do mm -hmm. or why someone might be especially conflict diverse. Uh, it, it, was just a, it, it helps me to have a category to know how to start to talk to that person. Yes, and hopefully it, it uh, arouses compassion Mm -hmm. and empathy. It also gives you tools to better love that person, to better challenge uh, mm -hmm. that person in a sensitive but but emotionally wise way. Yeah. Uh, and so look, I does it help you love better? Yes, I think that's a yeah. gospel virtue, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so uh, I think it feathers well with the gospel. And I think Everything about it is continuous with the message of Jesus. I, yeah. I don't I don't have any anxiety uh, with that at all. Yeah, yeah. It it helps me in my marriage mm. um, because my my wife every test has her as a two, mm. and one of the things that I have always said is you know. I have a really low maintenance marriage, a really low drama uh, sort of sort of marriage. Of, of all of the things that I have to worry about, 
my wife being um, angry or upset or so forth uh, is not one of them. But it helped me to see uh, how uh, some things that might be going on for her that are stressful that I would never know are stressful. That's right. And and that and that could easily I could easily see as just well this is just the way she is without realizing she could very easily serve herself into uh, oblivion with everyone around her if we don't support her mm-hmm. in that way so it helped me with that trying to figure out uh, how best to love her yes and it gives you a vernacular yeah that you can in comp- like for you mentioned the, there's four there's all these fours there the other night mm-hmm. uh, and. You know, it just gave us a language to say, well, this is why we had so much fun tonight. Yeah. And and when someone shares something deep, we don't, you know, the rest of us kind of lean back in our chairs and go, okay, we're comfortable with this. Yeah. Whereas other types wouldn't be, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, yeah and, it might even be really distressing to to someone to say a peacemaker uh, or, or, or something like that might see that as being... Uh, I don't know, maybe anxiety uh, producing if you start talking about really deep uh, sort of tragic things. Absolutely. And and so I think, um, you know, understanding the inner architecture of, of other people is tremendously valuable. Mm-hmm. And these are low resolution pictures of that inner architecture. So let's have no, you know, uh, illusions about that. But even if you got 10% more clarity yeah. about your wife yeah. or about your children or about a colleague, that's an evolutionary leap forward. Yeah. You know, a really big one. So you're not saying that... If you know someone's type, then you know that person. You, you, you sort of have the, the really, the, the predictive category. Someone said to me, knowing that we were friends, said it must be really creepy to be with Ian Cron. And I said, why? Why would it be creepy? And they said, because you're, you're with somebody who knows everything psychologically and you're sort of, uh, uh, you, you know, you're, you're being psychoanalyzed. Although I said, well, I, I don't really think that's the case. But I think that that person had this, had this idea, if you know about personality, then that means you know you, you just see right through that person and you know everything that there is. Now, that's really not what you're saying in the story of you or anywhere else, right? Heck no. Just because yeah. you know someone's type doesn't mean you know them. Yeah. And here's another thing to be clear. I don't think about the Enneagram all day long. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a useful tool. I think it's only one of many good tools in the life of a, of a Christian looking to develop into a wholeness, shalom, you know, their, yeah. their complete self. It's not the only one by a mm-hmm. long shot. Um I think it's just the one that I happen to be trained in. Now, the other thing that I would say is I, uh, we are wildly complex human beings, uh, these creatures called human beings. And, you know, personality is a part of who we are, but it's not the sum total of who we are, right? And I don't walk around typing people all day long. I find it obnoxious when I meet some novice student of the Enneagram and they're like typing dogs, you know, and I'm like, (laughs) oh, please stop it. Uh, I find it, you know, to be, as I mentioned, again, another, to, not to overuse the word, a useful instrument, but it's not the, you know, I didn't find it in a cave like Harrison Ford, right, you know, right. like it's on, written on magic tablets, yeah. you know, it's, you know, it is what it is. You, it, this book is specifically about story mm-hmm. uh, and about sort of the scripts and the stories we we live by. You know what I've been thinking about a lot over the past several weeks. You mention in this book at one point uh, Spider-Man, 
uh, and about sort of your identification with this sort of angst-ridden teenager yes. Spider-Man. I was thinking about this when uh, my kids and I were seeing Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, newest uh, Spider-Man movie. And spoilers, if, if you haven't seen it by now and you, you don't want to spoil, then you can skip on it. But one of the things that was really interesting to me in watching this movie is it was the most interactive uh, theater experience I have ever had. I'm not one of the people who goes to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show in the middle of the night and so forth where people are really interactive. But in this one, uh, the, the crowd would cheer. And, and the reason that they would cheer is when there was an unexpected character from a different set of Spider-Man movies uh, who would show up. And you have sort of these these three different Spider-Men from three different series of movies who encounter one another. And every time that, that one of them would show up, there would be this cheering that was going on. And I think it's because you had these storylines and these narratives that were sort of coming together. Uh, and there was a sense of surprise and there was a sense of, of holding the, these stories together. And as I, I thought about that quite a bit uh, afterward, because it seems to me that there are a lot of people when they're looking at the story of their life, either implicitly or explicitly, they really spend a lot of time thinking about the stories that weren't written. So they're thinking about what if I had done something else? What, what if I had been six feet away from that radioactive spider? Well, what if I had decided to not go to college? I mean, what would have happened in my life? And I think that's something that that kind of weighs on people and also is a kind of burden in some ways. Um, I remember, I think I think we were together when someone was talking about, it might have been you, uh, but was talking about um, something in his life and someone said, well, this is what you signed up for. And the person said, yeah, but I was 19. Yeah. <laughs> I don't trust a 19-year-old to make decisions for me uh, now. So. How, how is it that people in their everyday lives, how are they kind of understanding story? Yeah. Well, we look at our lives through the lens of story. We're wired for narrative. Mm -hmm. And this is why you hear people say all the time, oh, I'm turning the page yeah. uh, in my yeah. life, or I'm, this is the beginning of a new chapter, yeah. or that cheesy pickup line, tell me, what's your story? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, everything mm -hmm. is story, yeah. right? Now, the premise of the book is, look, and this is validated by psychology, and I think it's true. All of us as little people craft a narrative that helps us explain to ourselves and others who we are and how we think the world works. Mm -hmm. We can't survive very long on this planet without a narrative, without a story. Otherwise, we our life becomes incoherent, mm -hmm. right? Uh, now, those stories are made up of what I call taken for granted beliefs. Uh, they're mm. made up of internalized messages that we pick up from family, peers, teachers, culture, you know, lots of, lots of forces in mm -hmm. our lives. And fundamentally, those stories are broken. They helped us survive childhood mm -hmm. because we needed, we needed a story, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but those broken stories, when, when we unconsciously drag them into adulthood and continue to live by their dictates, 
by those beliefs, by those false messages. They make a mess of our lives. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, Carl Jung has a, a, a great quote, and I'm gonna, this is gonna be a complete butchering of it, mm -hmm. but this is the general idea that the, the very things that help us in the morning of life will ruin us in the afternoon. Mm. And so I, these little stories that we built and uh, got going inside our heads uh, in the afternoon of life will we'll make a mess of us. And mm. each of the, this, is, this was the aha for me with the Enneagram. I realized one day they're not just personality types. These are nine archetypal stories, mm. uh, one of which uh, you know, we might gravitate toward and adopt in childhood. And... Uh, to make sense of our lives in the world. And the reason I know that story is broken is because the underlying premise of it is fundamentally in direct opposition to the story of the gospel. Mm. In all nine, in all nine, all nine cases. Mm. So oh, Enneagram one, the improver, we used to call them perfectionist. Mm. Their broken story revolves around this idea that the world only rewards good mm -hmm. people and punishes bad people. And in order to be good, they have to perfect themselves, others in the world to find love. Mm. Where does it say that in the gospel? Right, right, right. That I can't make mistakes. I have to be perfect to have, to know the love of God and others. Now, you see how that story may have helped that little person mm -hmm. make sense of the world, but it's, you know what that happens by the time you're yeah. a couple of decades in, even you're two and down. a half. Yeah, it's a, all nine stories. So the purpose of the book is to exhume the story interrogate the underlying premise. And then as the narrator of your story, uh, or we might say co-creator, if you'd like, co-author of your story with God, uh, rewrite the narrative. Maybe sub-creator. However we want to put yes. it. Yeah, sub-creator, yeah. right? But, but we have an obligation to ourselves and to those we love to live in a true story, mm. not, in a, not in a false story that has this trance-like quality. It's like the old fish water trope, you know? It's mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. you don't even know you're in this false story until you do. And well, I how, how do you pick it up, first of all? And second of all, why is it that you will have people who are in the exact same environment, the exact same family, uh, and they respond to it completely differently. I mean, I think about my brothers and I, very different personality types. Look at my children. I have, um, I have one son who's sort of really not worried at all, and he's really accepting and forgiving of people. And I have to sort of guide him toward, let, let's think about what's just and right here. And then another who is worried uh, and inclined to everything is real. Everything is a matter of completely black, completely white. Mm -hmm. And we have to have to sort of bring him over here. They grew up in the same house with the same parents and the same everything. How, so how does that happen? Where where someone will will adopt a story that might be completely different from someone else in the same situation? Well, first of all, thank goodness they do. Otherwise, we'd have a very monochromatic right. world, Correct. right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, and family would be very boring if yeah. that were the case. Uh, but, uh, secondly, this is a principle I think is very true. It's not what happened to you that matters so much as what you think happened what to you. What you think happened. Mm. What you perceive happened to you. Mm -hmm. And then how you interpreted what that experience meant yeah. about you, right? So you could have two, and also let's not, 
discount temperament and disposition. Mm -hmm. I mean, certain kids come into the world more naturally anxious than right. other kids. Some kids right. come in more carefree and, you know, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So between disposition, temperament, and experience, uh, you know, we, we get these odd permutations yeah. of these different stories, yeah. right? So that's how the story can be both archetypal, many people occupy it, but at the same time specific. Yeah. Uh, based on our personal histories. Can that happen with, when, when you talk about how you pick up the, these stories you tell yourself, can that happen with churches? Oh, yeah. And I, I think about this as someone who, uh, I grew up in a very Southern Baptist uh, context where the church was a, really important uh, part of my life. And, and when we would sing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, it really meant uh, that. I mean, it really felt that way to me. And I had all of the sort of Southern Baptist sword drill awards and where you find verses in the Bible and Vacation Bible School awards and, and so forth. And it, it seems to me when I left a Southern Baptist uh, ministry to a different ministry just this past year. It was really difficult because I felt guilty uh, and still do sometimes, um, not because of anything I did, but because I would say, well, how could I leave them? And it started to, it started to make sense to me when my wife said, I think you're feeling this as though your home church were saying to you as a child, this isn't good enough. The, the sword drill's not, not good enough. You didn't find the Bible verses quick enough. You didn't memorize the missionaries, uh, and, and you're not one of us. So, I mean, can that, can that be a reality? In, and I know what my situation was particularly immersive. No pun intended, uh, there. But could, could that happen um, in maybe churches that aren't quite that uh, cohesive? And if so, how do churches help kids to write storylines that'll be healthy for them uh, later on as they're, as they're thinking through their place in the world and how they relate to God? Well, yes, obviously it can happen. And, and you know, churches are not infallible as we know, yeah, right? They, yeah. they are, are broken institutions uh, mm -hmm. or organisms, uh, imperfect. And so uh, they can certainly hand us scripts early in life yeah. that uh, are unhealthy, right? Yeah. Uh, the message, for example, might be, um, you have to be perfect or you won't be loved. Yeah or you must serve everybody while not acknowledging your own needs, right? Mm -hmm. Or it might be, uh, you know, you have to succeed at being a follower of Christ, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and appear successful and never fail. I mean, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we get all these kinds yeah. of things. And, and all of them, and all of them, for all of them, you could find biblical justification uh, yes. for, for what you think you're doing. Yes. Um, but they can become distortions yeah. of the actual truth, right? They could become, uh, we, we could place such a hard emphasis into them that they, they become 
very unhelpful and damaging, yeah. you know? And so, look, you, 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 you probably just went through the journey, right, of, of saying, okay, so uh, in the old story, these messages are what I picked up, mm-hmm. and that's maybe where the guilt is coming in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's an old story. Yeah. And that part of the story no longer serves you, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, if you have enough self-awareness, as you do, and you have the capacity for self-reflection, and I think also you have some of the tools and like I present in the story of you, which I think is, you know, I, as you know, good teaching is just about saving people time. Yeah. And I, in the story of you, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to save people time. Like, let's, rather than waiting until the story completely breaks apart mm-hmm. in life, why don't we take responsibility and ownership of our role in the creation of that story and come up with one that's that's true and, and life-giving and aligned with your values and aligned with your beliefs? So how, in the story of you, do you help people? I, I imagine there are people listening to this who would say, well, I don't know what stories I've picked up about myself, and I don't know what story I'm, I'm listening to right now. So how do, I, how do I find out? Sure. Well, one thing is, uh, in the first part of the book, I talk about why narrative works the way that it does, why it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Then I talk about the nine stories of each of the Enneagram types. I think anybody who reads, you don't even need to know the Enneagram. You could just read those nine stories and say, oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Yeah. You know, And then... Uh, there's a four-stage process that I try to work people through toward writing a new story. So the first step would be to see, right? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? It, it means we have to go back and exhume the old story to interrogate all the old beliefs and that continue to perpetuate and support that fallacious story, that mm-hmm. untrue story, right? Uh, and then the next step would be to own and, and that, that really is saying, okay, what has this cost me? Hmm. The story I'm telling. The, what has this story cost me? So in my, in my situation as an Enneagram 4 who grew up with the mistaken belief and built a story around the belief that there was something profoundly wrong with mm-hmm. me, it was unnameable missing piece mm-hmm. uh, that prevented me and, and led me to believe that I was unworthy of love and relationship and belonging and wholeness in the world. Mm-hmm. What did that cost me? Mm-hmm. Well, it cost a lot, right? It, and into adulthood, I started the, with that set of false beliefs, that story hurt my marriage. It, it hurt my friendships. Mm-hmm. It limited me. It, 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 was, it sabotaged me at different points mm-hmm. uh, along the way. And, you know, to own the shadow aspect mm-hmm. of the type. And isn't that a Christian idea? Yeah. Right? Well, and, and also, isn't it, um, I think we have a tendency to assume that everyone is living out the same basic story. Oh, I, mean, no. I, I yeah. think of uh, David Sedaris, the, um, uh, the essayist, uh, comedic essayist, was talking about his sister, went to a weight loss uh, sort of a class, and the leader of the class stood up and said, you know, and, the, and his sister just wanted to lose a few pounds. It said the leader stood up and said, you know, all of us in the middle of the night go into the kitchen and consume an entire cake. You know, we, we're all honest. All of us do this on a regular basis. And his sister is thinking, I've never consumed an entire cake. <laughs> the, the person just assumes, well, you know, we all do this because I do it. Right. And it, it, it can help you to figure out 
people may have very different ways of <laughs> responding to things and, and even interpreting what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. There are as many lenses as there are people, right? Yeah. Uh, now, the, the third step is to awaken. Uh, and to, you know, it's interesting, Russell, I think if you were to take the sum total of the, particularly of the ancient writings in the church, and you try to compress the message of all those great, great doctors of the church mm-hmm. uh, into one pithy statement. It comes down to this, I think. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up to uh, the truth uh, about who you are, about the world, about, you know, just, just like- if we walk in the light. Yes. Yeah. And, and so um, the, the awakening step really is, as I mentioned earlier, it's like the old fish water trope. It's like these stories have a trance-like quality to them. We fall asleep. We go on to autopilot. We just, you know, kind of like motor along in our lives, kind of sleepwalking. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, awakening has to do with, okay, well, when does this story launch? What does it look like? What do mm-hmm. I do when it relaunches? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what new choices can I make now that I know the old and the new story I'm writing? Mm. Then the last step is the rewrite. There's the R of SOAR, S-O-A-R, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and that really is this intentional process of, of sitting down and saying, what is the story uh, I, to which I'm being called? Mm-hmm. And what does it look like? What, what, what does it, uh, what's the plot, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, where am I going? Uh, what's the errand upon which I've been sent here to, you know, to fulfill, if you will? And uh, it's a very exciting step, yeah. right? And it's not set in stone. It's a first draft. Everything's a first draft, yeah. right? You'll edit as the years go yeah. by, but man, you got to start somewhere. So. Yeah, and can't it can't it go too far? Um, because I think there are some people who, as you say, are asleep and need to be awakened. There are other people, though, that I think feel like they have to know who they are before they can live life. And because they don't, I mean, none of us, none of us really, we don't know who we are if we're eternal, uh, created for eternal life. And uh, as as Jesus says, you have a new name given to you on a, on a white stone. So the, the, there's all sorts of aspects of our story that are yet future, we don't know. And don't you think there are some people who think, I've got to figure all this out before yeah. I can sort of do something. And, and then they're, they're kind of anxious. Uh, they don't have that, that sort of wilderness, desert kind of transition period where you're thinking, I don't really know where this is going. You see what I'm saying? Is that, is that possible with some people? I think you're absolutely right. I, I think, you know, uh, this happens a lot in your early 20s. Right, mm. you you have to say I gotta gotta find myself yeah. before I yeah. make a commitment to a particular career path or mm-hmm. whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, you with very with kindness and gentleness, you have to say oftentimes to a person in that part of life is, look, you're a plane up in the air being built as you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? There will be turbulence. There will be clear air. There will be all sorts of things. But you are in process for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, this idea that there is um, some kind of monolithic self that you could arrive at that's like set in stone and you're going to go, I found it. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. Uh, it's a, There's a journey toward clarity and... Uh, of self-discovery mm. that's um, 
particularly important. And, and you know, I was going to mention earlier when people get anxious about, you know, well, there's just too much focus on self and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is this just another kind of navel-gazing exercise that you're encouraging? I just always remind people of what Calvin said in the opening of the Institutes, without self-knowledge, there is no knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meaning, I think, without, an, uh, t- without the capacity to look inward and, uh, and to, to, to assess what we find, you'll have no ability to understand one's need for grace. Mm-hmm. Right or to repent, to repent, yeah. uh, to turn around, uh, yeah. to think, to think anew about who you are, uh, and you know, I, I think that this is part of of the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the story I've been living in? Is it the right story? Is it is this story in? Is it continuous with the gospel or is it in opposition to the gospel? Mm-hmm. And I think the I think the story of you helps people to to reclaim. Mm. a gospel story for your own life. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Russell Moore. You know, I was thinking about story of you uh, in something that has, at first when I say this, you're going to say this has absolutely nothing to do uh, with anything. But the philosopher Byung-Chul Han um, was writing about pornography. And uh, he's he's really worried about the pornographic nature of American society and the reason, or, or world society. And the reason he was worried about it is not for the reasons that uh, that I would be worried about it as uh, an evangelical Christian. He said that for him, the great worry is that porn uh, removes the storyline. It removes the the narrative of, uh, of a person's life. He said, so what, what porn is, is Let's get down to business. Yeah. And and that starts turning you into a person receiving other other people in this most intimate way as commodities. What he said, if you think about it, fidelity is a, a storyline. You, you're, you're committing to I will stand with you. So a marriage ceremony, uh, you're, you're saying in sickness and in health, you're, you're, you're sort of projecting the story uh forward. And I thought about that to say, you know, there's a part of this, Ephesians 5 is built around a a narrative. There are echoes all all through it of washing his bride with water, uh, Jesus with Peter, uh, washing his feet, giving himself up for her. 
that there's a narrative there. And I sort of, as I was reading him, thought this actually makes sense of one part of sort of the confusion uh, that, that comes not just with porn, but with all sorts of other ways that we, we grasp for what we see as the, the core of something, but we can't get there. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an illusion because it's, it's destroying the, the storyline. Do you think he's on to something with that? Yeah, I uh, was actually speaking to someone this morning about a, uh, it wasn't an academic paper, it, it was of sorts, but written by uh, a theologian at St. Olaf's in Minnesota, mm. years and years, you've probably read it, called How the World Lost Its Story. No. It's a, actually a brilliant little paper. Mm. Uh, and uh, in it, what he says is, look, there was at one time in our Western society an agreed upon narrative that explained the way the world is. Mm -hmm. And it was a biblical narrative. Whether mm -hmm. you believed in the Bible or not, you still had to live mm -hmm. in a culture that was steeped in that yes. narrative. Mm -hmm. So we told time by it. There was Lent, there was Advent. Yeah. You know, the time was told according to that narrative. Uh, we... Um, you know, uh, now we tell time by football seasons mm -hmm. or baseball seasons. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's baseball season. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like we, the world has lost a sense of an agreed upon narrative, which it then creates a great deal of confusion, uncertainty, anxiety, et cetera. And I would say that the story of you, I think makes a, I hope a good contribution in this regard, because I believe that there is an overarching narrative. There is a story being told right now mm -hmm. in the world, mm -hmm. all right, of the world. And our stories participate in that grander narrative, mm -hmm. right? And so it's important for us to get our story straight so that it can uh, accelerate and support God's plan of redemption in the world, that story. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to participate in that story when your story's false. Yeah, yeah. You know, you uh, have have spoken and written quite a bit in other contexts about addiction. Mm -hmm. And I found myself thinking about that as I was rereading through the story of you because I, f I find right now, maybe it's COVID, maybe it's just the, the state of uh, the world right now, but I find a lot of people coming to me with addiction uh, issues because... Um, maybe they're self-medicating in some way, and they don't, they can't find an off-ramp. Uh, to, to a lot of pastors, who who would say, "I'm trying to grapple with the fact that I think I'm drinking too much, mm -hmm. but I can't go to anyone and say I have yeah. this problem because then it would be, why are you drinking at all? You know that that sort of thing. They don't have an exit ramp. How does working through your stories help you there? Boy, it's so it's so. I Amazing you're asking me that question. Mm. Number one, everybody's an addict. Mm. Everybody. There's just, there's no exception, right? The, the benefit that chemical addicts have over other people, the, uh, the advantage they have, is that eventually everyone figures out they have an addiction. Mm. Mm -hmm. And there's a place they can go to get help, yeah. right? Yeah. People with porn addictions, yeah. people with approval addictions, yeah. food addictions, uh, work addictions, I mean, it's the list of possible addictions is endless. Yeah. And everybody doesn't have just one addiction. We are a seething cauldron of addictions, yeah. right? So, um, you know, that, I just begin with that, that sort of anthropological premise, 
right? Because I hate it when people say, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you in your addiction, as though they didn't have one. <laughs> as though they're standing yeah. outside, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody got something. Everybody got a way of coping with pain, mm-hmm. right? Everybody. A self-prescribed medication plan, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to cope with, with pain. The, the addiction to being right. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. the list can go on and on and on. Now, I just did a weekend away with a, uh, a friend of mine, Michael Cusick, a brilliant, brilliant therapist, an addictionology sort of a guy. And uh, I was a group therapist for six hours a day working with men in addiction. Some of them were in active addiction. Some of them were in recovery. It was intense. Mm-hmm. What's so fascinating and was so encouraging was that early in the process, I turned to the group and I asked uh, that very question that an early mentor asked me do you guys think that maybe the source of your problem has been that you're in the wrong story? Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. And they just looked at me as though I invented fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of mm-hmm. course, you know, a lot of what I write here isn't original. So I have, you know, I've, if we had time, I could get an attribution to all the people that have helped me come to the place of writing the story of you. However, right away they got it. Mm. And from that moment forward, we had another 18 or 24 hours of group therapy I led with these five men. All they did was talk about their problem through the lens of their narrative. Mm. Mm. All of them. So I think one of the ways, yes, we have a, an epidemic of addiction, not just of you know, prescription medications. It's, you know, every time I get a phone call and some guy at the other end says, do you think we could get together? Yeah. I just want to talk to you. I go, oh, you want to talk about porn? Yes. I mean, yes. every single yes. time. Yes. It's like, I'm Absolutely. like, oh gosh, here we go. Absolutely, yes. And and um, in almost all of the cases, at least that I deal with, there are people who are addicted to, and it almost always is porn, and find themselves as a result thinking that God is perpetually angry with them. Mm. And then they medicate from that yes. with more, and it just becomes more and more of a cycle. Yeah, we call that the unvirtuous cycle, right? Mm. The behavior causes shame, and then we go back to the behavior to medicate ourselves against the shame. So, how do you get out of that? If um, you know, when I'm, I will be talking to someone in an hour that I think it's about this. Uh, so, how how do I help that person to to get out of that cycle? Sure. So I can only share with you my own story mm. uh, in brief. You know, I, as a young man, uh, lived, in a, and lived in the wrong story. And as a result of where that story came from as a young man, as a young boy, uh, developed a drug and, and alcohol addiction. And, you know, that eventually led to treatment, eventually led to having to deal with, with the wrong story that I'd been living, mm-hmm. right? How do people get out of it? Part of it is we need places where people can uh, emerge from the shadows and tell their story. A safe place. Mm-hmm. Sadly, the church is often the least safe place in the world mm-hmm. to tell those stories. Mm-hmm. Why should we be surprised in the church that people uh, find themselves lost even after they've been saved. Why should we be, of, of all places, we should be the yeah. most compassionate, tolerant. Of course you're telling the wrong story. Mm-hmm. This is the human condition. Come on in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, it's so sad that, that they have to 
Now, I've been fortunate in my life that very early on, I was introduced to recovery communities where I could come in and tell my story and nobody blinked. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's an old expression, you know, mold grows in the dark. Mm-hmm. Mildew and mold, you know, the mm-hmm. ugly stuff grows in the dark. It's only when we can bring these stories into the light mm-hmm. and share them in, an, in, a, in a climate of compassion and uh, where there is no shame. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, shame will chase you back into the shadows faster mm-hmm. than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we can find the beginning of healing, mm-hmm. right? We, we need a, a safe place to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so that we can get our story straight. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a, a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. But really, we have to create these healing communities. You know, it's just not enough to say, bad dog, stop that. Right, right. right. Um, that's, you know... Look, because because I've seen a lot of people, um, their response ultimately is, I'm just a bad person. There's no way that I can ever change. And so therefore, I'm just going to plunge right in, no matter what it is that they're dealing with. So I'm going to say something your audience may not like. Okay. But maybe not. Maybe maybe it's right. I don't think we're bad. I think we're broken. And there's a big difference. Does that make sense? Well, I, I would say we're both. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think we're we're bad in the sense that we're we're sinners. All sin is lawlessness, and and we're uh, we're guilty, and we're broken in the sense that when God says, "Adam, where are you?" Mm-hmm. our first response is to hide. Yes, that response is reflexive, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's born as a result of the shame, right? Mm-hmm. Shame shame is always about hiding, mm-hmm. right? It, it's the fear of exposure. Yeah. Right. And what I mean, I, I don't disagree with you, um, but I think there is such a a hardness sometimes in Christian communities. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't consulted about the family in which I was raised. Mm-hmm. I wasn't consulted about a lot of stuff that bore a lot of painful stuff in my life and gave birth to some some ways of coping with it that were very unhealthy. But don't you think, it, it seems to me, sometimes I will see people or churches pinging back and forth. I mean, not the same the same person or the same church, but you'll have someone who grew up in a really guilt oriented uh, sort of uh, sort of a community that then um, goes to a place that just sort of makes everything therapeutic in a sense of well, it, it's it's not that that you need to be called to repentance. It's that this is. You're, you're, you're a broken person living in a broken world. And then uh, you'll, you'll see people who sort of grew up in that and they realize that's actually not taking seriously the holiness of God. And sometimes they will go to a, a complete other extreme where it almost becomes, if, you're, if you have your theology right, then you're going to be able to correct this. Do you see those those different uh, communities that are sort of almost reacting to each other sometimes in ways that, you know, to use the old cliche, throw the baby out with the bathwater, but but sort of everything is in opposition to whatever bad thing I experience. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting a therapeuticized yeah. kind of theology, yeah. okay? That's not at all what I'm suggesting. Yeah. I guess maybe... What I would say is this is a both-and situation, yeah. and that calls for compa- rigorous self-honesty and compassion, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't want people to wallow in shame. 
Uh, I, and I don't want people to have a naive sort of self mm-hmm. uh, perception um, or assessment. Uh, we have to carry both intention, yeah. right? Um, you know, our mutual friend, Mako Fujimura, mm-hmm. gave me maybe two years ago as a gift, he gave me this 200-year-old kintsugi bowl. And for oh, those mm-hmm. those who don't know, uh, kintsugi was the um, <clears throat> the ancient Japanese means golden joinery is what that word means. It's the ancient uh, practice of taking um, a broken piece of ceramic, a tea bowl usually, taking the shards and putting them back together and joining them with this golden lacquer, right? Precious golden Mm. lacquer. So what you get is a bowl with all these, this web of cracks, but they're filled with gold. And ironically, the bowl becomes more beautiful in the end, in its broken state than it was when it was prior to its breaking. Yeah. Yeah. And every, I've got it on a shelf in my house, Russell, and I swear to you, every time I look at it, I go, there's the gospel. Mm. There it is. Mm. Uh, as Eugene O'Neill once said, man is, man is born broken. He lives by mending. The grace of God is glue. Don't you think for Christians, when we think about um, Colossians 3, your life is hidden in Christ, um, that part of what we have to be reminding ourselves of is the story of Jesus. You are crucified with Christ. You are raised with Christ. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians, which means that if you're hidden in Christ and God has given you his opinion of Christ, that that's, that's your story too. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're if you're united to him, and one of the things I've noticed a lot that's different, and I mentioned this in some other contexts, ten years ago, it, it, when I was talking to a twenty-something-year-old, I was having to correct usually this sort of lackadaisical attitude about sin, sort of a finding a way to justify one's short temper or you know whatever. Now. A lot of times the conversations I'm having with, you know, Christian college students and others, I have to say, you know, you're actually doing the right thing. What what you're living is repentance of sin, and they think they're failing <laughs> when they're actually living out the Christian life. It's just a, a completely d- different sort of um, – with with most of the time in the first category, it was sort of a, a way of what Dallas Willard would call sin management. And with most people now, I find this sense of shame uh, th- that often shows up the most in the people who are really living the most uh, <laughs> gospel-oriented sort of lives of repentance. I mean, do you see that? Yeah, I, I do see it among a certain segment, and particularly among younger people who are very earnest. Yeah. Uh, and there's a there's a little bit of black and white thinking. I'm either all good or I'm all bad. Mm-hmm. And we're, we tend to be Velcro for the bad messages mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Teflon for the good ones. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think, um, you know, for me, repentance doesn't mean toxic sorrow. Right, it, it it has an emotional component, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. God, God forbid, literally, that you get caught in that web of sort of um, self-indulgent, morose um, self-hatred mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that can come about. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think there's the intellectual component, which is literally, 
I just have to rethink whether this mode of life, I have to repent. I have to turn around and say, you know, this really isn't working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's sort of like, you know, it's not just an emotional thing. It's like, I need to go in a different direction. I, in fact, we could say, I need a new story mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. this one. Yeah. Like in, maybe in my old story, porn was a really good way of mm-hmm. dealing with my depression and loneliness. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And maybe I need to realize that it's not working. Right. Right? right. And to me, so repentance is both an emotional... Idols always disappoint. Always. Yeah. And also to say to yourself, oh, and by the way, this is what humans do. It's mm-hmm. not, you know what I mean? In other yeah. words... We shouldn't be, you know, sin is boring. Mm. It, it, find me a new one. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, find me something outside of, you know, gluttony, sloth, you know, yeah. whatever, spiritual torpor, whatever you want to say. I mean, look, it's boring. It hasn't come yeah. up with anything new. And, and there so, was an Eastern Orthodox priest who told me that hearing confessions, oh, yeah. he was struck by the fact that um, in one sense— almost every confession he heard would have been impossible when he started his ministry because they're they're usually technologically somehow sure. uh, connected. Uh, and yet, he said, I'm, I'm dealing with the same oh, things yeah. that John oh, yeah. Chrysostom would have been dealing oh, yeah. with. Yeah. Uh, people, I mean, in my tradition, we have confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I listen, I hear confession as an Episcopal priest, but I certainly hear him as, I certainly hear confession as a therapist. Yeah, yeah. Now, and when people tell me stuff, in the back of my mind, part of me says, oh, that old chestnut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? It yeah. ain't something like I'm like, wow, you really surprised me yeah. this time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, we, I'm an Enneagram 4. You're an Enneagram 4. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm really good at? Empathy. Yeah. You know, you can just tell me anything and I'll go, oh, man. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. That, that's, that's hard. Yeah. Right? But there's a way out. Yeah. There's a way out. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to be stuck in that toxic shame, in that toxic forever sorrow. Yeah. That you are, there's a bright abyss here. You're, mm-hmm. on the, you're in the abyss, but it's bright. You mm-hmm. know, like that, that's where you're going to be met. And uh, so I, uh, again, I, I take a more, I guess, a nuanced view of things. I, I want to create a safe place for people to tell their story. I, I want to be able to confront the lies in the story, but I also want to help them rewrite a better one. Yeah. Because, I, because I think that is uh, a, a profound sacred calling and an obligation, as I said earlier, because we owe it to the people we love to live a true story. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. 
Well, I've gotten caught up in the story of this uh, conversation. I don't have my uh, time maker, a uh, timekeeper here with me, so I know I've kept you longer than than I told you I was going to. But one more question Go. Uh, that I have, because um, just like I can almost predict when someone says, can we have coffee, that there's some porn uh, element there, which we talked about earlier. It also is the case that the vast majority right now of um, emails or calls uh, that I get from people will have to do with political divisions in their family, uh, or maybe it's someone whose adult parents have become involved in conspiracy theories of some sort. Or I, I told um, a friend yesterday, because uh, he was talking about how many churches do you see that are sort of uh, divided politically in a damaging way? And I said, all of them, because even the ones that aren't are sort of looking around at the ones that are and saying, that's what we're trying to sidestep and to avoid right now. So how do, how do we deal with, with that? When it's not just that we have different stories related to our own lives, uh, people are inhabiting worlds where they're getting completely different information and completely different understandings of reality. How do we get around that? So I'm, first of all, I'm really glad that I'm not a pastor anymore. Mm. I'm an ordained priest, but I don't have a parish. I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not responsible for a congregation. Uh, I wasn't particularly awesome at it. Uh, and, and I would be even worse at it in the, in the present climate, right? Mm. Um, you know, one of the things I would say is that we live in a supermarket of stories, all mm. of which try to explain the way the world is. Democracy is a story, mm -hmm. right? Communism was a story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, America is a story. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, certainly economics uh, have, you know, certain economics have, a, there's a mm -hmm. story being told, right? Uh, some are true, some are less true, but the fact of the matter is they're all lesser stories. Mm -hmm. Some are untrue, but some are just lesser stories. Yeah. Now, when you, take a story of republicanism or, you know, liberalism, whatever your thing is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you elevate it to being the story. Mm -hmm. Now you're in trouble mm -hmm. because we've already talked about the story, mm -hmm. right? Which is, this is my story. This is my song. It's that story is the yeah. big story. These are lesser stories. Yeah. But when we overprivilege them, they become dangerous yeah. stories. Yeah. And I, I fear that we've conflated stories between, uh, let's say, uh, a national, a nationalist story and the big story. You know, I think that's a dangerous deal when you start to twin stories. Yeah. You know, one has to be bigger than the other in my mind. Yeah. And uh, so I don't know actually how we deal in the in the present world. I haven't even heard a great, you know, and I'm a reader like you. I, I haven't even heard great advice yet. Yeah. Or, or the really like the, the key, the, like where I go, oh yeah, that'll work. <sighs> yeah. Man, it's just the... Well, and, and part of the reason for that is that I think that, and, and I, I am with you, a very narrative uh, person. In this case, I think we, all of us, or most of us have kind of overly narrativized this in the sense that People would always say when some craziness was going on, boy, the scriptwriters are drunk. 
or well, we lost it, the plot. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sort of a that sort of a thing. And I think that at every stage with the craziness going on around us, we have thought, okay, well, this is going to turn. Then you know when when this happens, or, or when when there's a vaccine for COVID, or uh, when lockdowns are over, or when this election is over, or that election, and and. The, it just keeps going on, mm-hmm. and there's no there's no narrative resolution uh, for us, and we're starting to get kind of panicked about that. I think. Yeah, and I think so much of what we see right now, these these addictions to stories, right, mm-hmm. to narratives of political narratives, social narratives, is really just the fruit of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Because if what what can we say about all of them? They're 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 trying to be predictive, mm-hmm. like this is what will happen. If yeah. we can, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like yeah. we're, we're, so there's this, how do you know? Yeah. I mean, but people can't live without the certitude right. that the narrative promises. Yeah. Like this is the, this is, you know, if we do this, they're going to do this. And this is where we're going to head. It's like, really? Like, yeah. do you really know? That? But people, because they're so anxious, want certitude. There's mm-hmm. a lust for certitude out there. Yeah. And versus, um, you know, I, I, I want people to have opinions. I want people to have but but I want I don't want people to lose the capacity to say, you know, this is what I think. Here's the key five words. But I might be wrong. Right. Right. But I might be wrong. Right. Without that kind of humility, then I think we're in trouble. The you know, you should, maybe you've already had him on the show. If not, you already know Bill Haslam. Oh, I mean, yeah. he's a pal. Have you yeah. had him on? Have you had him uh, on here? Uh, yes. Um, to talk about faith. Not, not on this show, uh, but I will. Uh, I had him on a previous uh, previous uh, show, Signposts. Yes. Okay, so you know he wrote the book Faithful yes, Presence. Faithful we were Presence. we were together at that yes at that uh, reading, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Bill has a great take uh, yeah. on this. It's very ironic, you know. It's a very he's got a really reconciliatory he is, voice. He is such a great guy. He is a great guy. Yeah. I, I'm a fan. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, so I I don't I don't know Russell. I I I, I worry. I don't despair, mm-hmm. but I worry about these. Uh, about the the state of things, and I don't know how pastors do it in mm-hmm. this environment, um, except to say we we really do have to pledge to which empire we're going to mm-hmm. care about most. And if you're listening to this and you have a good pastor mm-hmm. or even a mediocre pastor, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, encourage yeah. that person and uh, and don't assume that. Well, my pastor knows that that we love uh, our, our leadership, they're hearing, I guarantee you, they're hearing a lot of uh, really awful stuff. Oh my gosh. And we were hearing awful stuff before. I mean, yeah. it wasn't, it's, it yeah. there's no harder job in the world. I am absolutely, I remember, I remember hearing Peter Drucker say once that the three hardest jobs he knew of was number one, to be a university president, okay? Mm-hmm. And the second was to be a head of hospital. Why? Because you have all these constituencies who yeah. who uh, who tend to think that their priorities should be the priority. Mm-hmm. You know, an alumni, the professors, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. you know, blah blah blah. And you're being pulled the at creditors, the credit, yeah. everybody, right? Uh, the neurosurgeons who think that there's you know the divas of the of the operating theaters yeah. as compared to the nurses, and yeah. you know, he said the third was being a pastor of a church over 300 people. Uh. And I I just remember him saying that and going, thank you. Yeah, you know. Uh, you're underpaid. You're often uh, over-criticized. You're and you're over. You're over-educated, underpaid, and over over-criticized and pounded on. Those are that's a tough combination. Yeah. 
you know, and uh, trying to manage a flock of, let's face it, you know, anarchists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Sinful anarchists, you know, like running, egos running riot in every direction (laughs) with their hair on fire, you know. That's Uh, right. Anyway, it's, 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 it's a tough gig. And, and uh, I have so much uh, admiration for, for people who have been called to that office. Uh, It's a, it's a tough and lonely business and also joyful and full of wonderful things. So I don't want to make it sound like it's all, you know, you get the pizza you order. If you choose it, you know, there's a reason. Yeah. And it sort of seems as though uh, at the same time that we have this, we have some toxic and awful uh, Christian leaders who have been, have had no accountability Mm -hmm. uh, at all. At the same time, we have some, faithful uh, oh, pastors yeah. who are yeah. serving uh, sometimes in, in very lonely places who don't have support. And both of those realities going on at the same time, that's, uh, we really need to, we really need to step up to that. Yeah, we, we, we do. And, and I think the same is true in the political sphere. You know, yeah. we, we only listen to the people who are loud enough and controversial enough to catch your news, news headlines, yeah. right? Yeah. Most of them are fear-mongering fools in my mind. Yeah. Lots yeah. of them, yeah. right? Yeah. And rageful and yeah. lacking humility and uh, the, have, the, have no capacity to listen, which is a, a really dangerous thing for a leader. Uh, but there are many, many quiet men and women out there, leaders who are doing good work, but you don't hear from them because they're just in the eyes of the media, boring. Yeah. You know, there's no, faithfulness doesn't play well. Correct. It doesn't raise money well. It doesn't, right. Yeah. And and, you know, it doesn't, people who don't, you know, if you want to raise money, make people scared. Yes. Right. And so, you know, those people who are out there faithfully doing their job, they, in that sphere also need our support and uh, our acknowledgement. The book is The Story of You. Ian Cron, I'm thankful uh, for your friendship and always good to visit. And um, I'm, I'm assuming that you would say to people they can get this wherever they buy books. They can. They go Amazon. They can walk into Barnes & Noble or their favorite independent bookseller and, and, uh, and, and get it there or order it there to support independent booksellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to say that uh, for, for two things. One is I'm grateful that you are, appear in the book. Uh, your story is uh, featured in one of the chapters and also that uh, you did a just a su- masterful job. I did a book reading the other night uh, for Parnassus Books here in Nashville, a wonderful, wonderful independent bookseller. Yes, I did. Uh, mm-hmm. And you did a, so many people told me you did a such a masterful job interviewing me and, and getting the conversation going in a way that was uh, really uh you know, interesting and and captured the listener. Well, thank you. And I hope that with two Enneagram fours, we manage not to be too dark. (laughs) 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 Thanks for listening to the Russell Moore Show. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And it really helps if you leave a review there. Helps people to find the show. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find the show notes with some resources for you, including how you can find a copy of The Story of You. And while you're at it, check out Christianity Today, founded by Billy Graham, global media company uh, seeking to advance the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and our host. 
Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Administration for CT by Christine Kolb, Pam Vodanova, and Abby Perry. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Grabencourt, coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer and sound mixer. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.